BlockWorks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in October. Over 800 institutions are attending, including FTX, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Coinbase, and the London Stock Exchange. To get a discount, use code GUIDANCE250, all caps, GUIDANCE250. I am joined by Dr. Richard Sandor, Chairman and CEO of the American Financial Exchange. Richard, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Jack, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and thank you for asking me. Richard, the pleasure is all mine. I would like to think that on Forward Guidance, I've had some pretty smart and important people, but I have no doubt that you, out of all the guests I've had, over 100, have had the greatest impact on the financial industry. You are known as the father of financial derivatives, and you created the in, the first the world's first interest rate futures contract which now is so pivotal it's hard to even imagine a world without interest rate futures you know when folks say oh the fed is uh, the market's pricing the fed is going to hike by 50 basis points or 75 basis points or they say they're talking about the euro dollar futures market that is all you richard take us back when did you create the world's first interest rate futures contract what were the circumstances under which you created it why did you create it because I, I think we can all learn so much about, about the, the the creation of that it's sort of like the big bang of finance are <laughs> oh, you're very kind uh, in your introduction Jack so thank you very much and I want to take you back to uh, <laughs> days long ago in a universe, et cetera, uh, that was unexplored. Um, it was about at this time, about 55 years ago, and I was a young academic uh, teaching uh, on the Berkeley campus uh, in the 1960s. I was uh, teaching and I was trading equities at the time, uh, kind of as a professor. And, and a colleague of mine said, well, you're doing okay. You want to trade commodities. So I started trading soybean oil and, and, and wheat and agricultural commodities. And in 60... Six and 69, you had a little bit of a blip in the interest rate markets. And we had gone through a period of, of quiescence from the end of World War II until the late 60s. And we'd gone through a familiar scenario, Jack, big deficits, an unpopular war. Um, see if this sounds familiar. And I said to um, myself, you know, I don't think this can last. Um, and so I think the only, there was no government debt. The only debt that was uh, issuance of bonds, the only debt that was outstanding was the mortgage market. So I uh, said, I wonder if you can turn interest rates into a commodity. And, and so I got the portfolio of an SNL that had 18,000 loans, and I tried to homogenize 
a mortgage interest rate. Um, and it turned out you couldn't because there was redlining. You were treated differently if you were single or married, you, you know, and there was no homogeneity in the market. And then in 1970, uh, Ginny Mays were born, the first mortgage-backed security, and I got in touch with the president of Ginny May, and I got in touch with a, a few people and started exploring the whole idea. One of the people that I got a call from was a guy by the name of Tom Bomar, <clears throat> who is concerned because he was the uh, president of Freddie Mac. And he said, I'm getting scared. We're not supposed to own mortgages, but I've got uh, 900 million or so, some piddling tiny number relative to what Freddie and Fannie now owns. And he said, we're just supposedly gonna develop the secondary market. And all of that was in California, which was cutting edge in every single way. Uh, Tom said, you think you can develop a mechanism to hedge? And I said, yeah, Tom, you know, as you know, I've been working on this. And I think that Ginny May offers a way to do it. Uh, concurrently, I got um, an offer from the Chicago Board of Trade because I had taught a class and I had a lot of executives in, including the head of the then Commodity Exchange. Um, authority and the executive VP of the Chicago Board of Trade. They were looking for a chief economist. I took a sabbatical from Berkeley. I said, I'll stay for a year, uh, but I want to work on two things. Um, this thing that I call financial futures. And, and I also think there's a big opportunity to create an insurance derivatives market as well. And, and I'll come for a year, I'll develop the concept, and then I will go back to Berkeley to teach. And Richard, what were the challenges of creating a financial future? Because physical delivery commodities, those types of futures had already existed for many, many years when, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take delivery of a barrel of oil for X price at Y date. It must be very different to have a to quote, deliver a financial future, something that does not exist in the physical world. Tell us a little bit about those obstacles. And then what was the first contract that you actually produced? Was it the 10 year bond future? Was it the overnight future? Uh, tell us about that in specifics. Okay. Let me set the stage. <laughs> When I first came to Chicago, a very wise guy uh, said to me, well, rates are going up, that's, that's good or bad. And he said, no, no, Richard, you're an academic economist. The, the, the movement of rates is only relevant if you're short or long. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> your view of the rate environment is informed whether you're naturally you know, a buyer or a borrower or a lender, right? So what is your net exposure? You know, to what extent do you have floating rate assets versus floating rate liabilities? To what extent do you have a mismatch in terms of asset and liabilities and, and uh, duration? So those certain banks, you can't say one or the other because 
just Jack is a kind of a seven-year-old guy, hundred-year-old guy. In 1980s, when we started bond futures, there was no bank in America that had a department that managed interest rate risk. The whole idea of asset liability management did not exist. Okay, it was, you couldn't go to any bank and say, who do I speak to about hedging? They looked at you like you were from the Central Bank of Mars. Nobody, you borrowed short and you lent long and you went home. Right? 363. You borrow at three, yes. you lend at six, and you're on the golf course by 3 p.m. <laughs> you're way ahead of me, Jack. Whether you're bullish or bearish, it depends if you're short or long, and it depends if your interest rate risk management and your exposure. So you can lengthen or shorten, you can create a, a movement with today's infinite possibilities of risk management. You can custom tailor your portfolio as a bank, as an investor, between any financial complex you want, and you could do it cost effectively. Right? That's the beauty of all of these tools. So in 72, when I joined the exchange, there were only uh, agricultural commodities, essentially. There was no energy complex. There was no interest rate context. There was no um, uh, any options. None of those products existed for a variety of reasons. Number one, the prices were quiescent and there wasn't a lot of volatility. And number two, nobody in the financial industry had a technical ability to trade a financial commodity because of the laws. The laws were not clear and unambiguous. So the first thing that you needed to do was to find a financial commodity that people needed to hedge. Ginny Mays were the first natural one because they were originated by mortgage bankers, sold to Wall Street, and then sold to investors. So they had the characteristics that made it look like wheat, okay? And interest rates started to become volatile in 73 when we had the Arab oil embargo, you had uh, droughts in China and Russia, you had very similar conditions than you have now, ballooning deficits, inflation rearing its head. And most people prior to that said, go back to Chicago, young man, or go back to the Berkeley campus. There's no need to hedge interest rates because they're not volatile. So I went back to Chicago. The people in Chicago were very open to new ideas and new products. It was a fertile community. So this stage was set. However, a mortgage wasn't part of the Commodity Exchange Authority of Listed Commodities. In 73, 
the United States Senate started looking at inflation and food prices and decided that the futures industry had to be regulated. As the chief economist for the exchange, I said to the folks, uh, my president, hey, don't look at this regulation as unfriendly. This is something we should support because we can get a new definition of a commodity. We can simply assert into the language that anything tangible or intangible would be subject to the new agency. And then the second key thing was I had developed a relationship with Senator Herman Talmadge and a guy by the name of Mike McLeod. And the other issue was to get exclusive jurisdiction. We lobbied for the bill, it was passed, and now you had a demand because of volatile interest rates and you basically had eliminated the regulatory impediment. It was clear that now you could trade anything intangible. And then at that time, I extended my sabbatical and the first interest rate futures was in 75. This was quickly followed by the government starting to issue long bonds. <laughs> you will, uh, your listeners will appreciate it. It was 2007, and the government had launched, I think it was the 7 and 5 eighths of 07, which was nicknamed the James Bond. Okay, it was the 007s. <laughs> And I uh, went to Les Rosenthal, who was then a member of the board. I said, let's expand this and trade treasury bond futures. Uh, the government doesn't have much debt outstanding, but I think the world is going to change. That there's actually going to be long bonds issued. And I think the total outstanding debt was like $18 billion as war quadruple amounts issued a month. So it was very important to design a mechanism that we had supply and, and thus we had cheapest to deliver and all of the complex technical issues were to minimize the possibility of manipulation and to create optionality in the short's hands in order to develop liquidity so the short could choose which coupon, what time of the month, what time of the day. And it was filled with lots of options. And if you understand the treasury contract, you really can understand what finance is, present value, alternative, yield maintenance, you know, whatever you might need to know. So I'm privileged to be here with you today on the, on the 45th anniversary of the oldest and longest surviving futures contract, uh, and that is the long bond futures. I got involved uh, five years later under some controversy again in, in saying, hey, we're going to see the 10-year become the major financing uh, effort. I was then put in charge of, I was elected to the board of directors of the exchange. I became a member. I had resigned. And so I worked on and developed the 10-year future 
And another big controversy was options on futures, which had been banned. They were called privileges in the 20s, and the people said it's leverage on leverage. It's a bad idea. Got the same reception that I got with the Ginny Mays treasuries in 10-year. This is not a good idea. The way you've designed it, it's destined to fail, etc. And that was essentially all of those have lived for 45 uh, years and coming up on the 50th anniversary. And it was the birth of the CFTC, the redefinition of a commodity, the recognition that interest rates would be volatile and that the World War II experience to, to, from 45 to 70 was the anomaly. And that basically we thought that government deficits and political uh, issues and challenges would remain a permanent part of the U.S. landscape. Subsequently got contacted by the, the people in London, worked on that, then worked on France, and most recently, a couple of years ago, worked in developing the first Chinese interest rate futures and advised the, the people in Shanghai. Wow, that's an incredible story, Richard. Just to give a lot a little context, so the 70s was a decade of extraordinarily inflation. And as a result, when people own bonds and inflation is high, they demand a greater return because the currency in which they're being paid is, is being depreciated day after day. So if you look at a chart of 10-year U.S. 10-year interest rates from 1970 to 1980, extraordinarily volatile, uh, I'm sure on an intraday basis as well as on a monthly and, and yearly basis. And then also the trend was up. Uh, so they, they started uh, quite low and they ended interest rates in 1980 extraordinarily high. And then you said, you, when you said the 30 year, the long bond in 07, not, that was not 2007 it was issued. It was issued in 1977. It matured in 2007. Just want to uh, uh, make that clear for our audience. Richard, tell me, what, it, what was it like when you found it, when you created the long bond future? Was demand extremely high given that folks needed to hedge interest rates because interest rates were going up? And then also, how do you get folks to take the other side of the bet? You know, if interest rates are going up and it's it's 9% on Monday and 9.1% on Tuesday and 9.2% on Tuesday, it must be pretty hard. You know, I imagine it's kind of a one sided market, right? Folks, all, everyone wants to bet that rates are going up. So uh, how do you sort of make sure that there's another side of the bet? It's a two sided market. Jack, it's a really important question. So everything I've worked on in the last 50 years, the same criticism comes up, which you articulated very well. There's only one-sided demand. So when you hear that, that's a very good sign that you're on the right thing. The second thing, it's generally opposed because vested interests don't like price transparency. Okay, so you normally have, have two or three major arguments. Number one, we don't need it. Number two, you'll never find the opposite side of the market and everybody here wants to hedge. But what people didn't understand that 
you have natural hedgers on the sell side. You have natural hedgers on the long side. And the only thing you have to really fill is the differential, the delta between the short hedgers and the long hedgers. And if you have a well-educated speculative public that can either trade from the long side or liquidity providers, and we sold and created special purpose memberships then, which was very radical, uh, which were permits to develop a professional liquidity provider. So it's hard for everybody to understand. I mean, it was on a trading floor, people shouting, palms this way, that buy, palms that way, sell, two bid for a million, two bid for a million. You know, we had all kinds of things that are hard to imagine in the pre-computer age. Um, and it was clear that you just needed to fill that gap. And we filled that gap by educating all of the potential longs, and there became a natural market. Uh, people uh, were selling puts on bonds, and there were people who bought bonds against puts. They were called standbys in the SNL industry. So there emerged a long buyer and a short seller, and ultimately that worked. Very important to recognize, make a very important. It takes two crises to create a market, in my experience. The first crisis alerts people as a problem, and the second crisis is it ratifies that they better do something, otherwise their competitors will. So the first crisis was 73 with the inflation and under Nixon, and the second came in 79 with the second oil embargo, and the head of the Fed, G. William Miller, who put the pedal to the floor under Carter and drove inflation up. So two events, 73 and 79. Same thing happened with energy. There were no energy futures in 73, okay? First was, and they didn't start, and not crude oil, it started with heating oil. And again, it was outsiders who were not part of the establishment. And that happened. So we always look for two crises. And it, even the same thing with the stock index futures. Remember, there was a bear market, or for your listeners in the 70s, People only looked at alpha. The money managers started realizing, uh-oh, nobody is paying attention to us. We better create a delta based on how we outperform because we've been so wrong in the 70s by buying stocks. So indexing was born as a result of that. The result of that indexing was, again, a future. So there's a structural change. That structural change creates the demand for a new hedging mechanism, and that's how it's born. Two crises, volatility, the need to transfer that risk. And it doesn't matter if you look at, at the pattern, it takes 20 years 
And that triggers it. And most importantly, you had to develop a regulatory world that facilitated the introduction of new commodities, whether it's here or London or China, it doesn't matter. Same patterns repeated itself for the last 50 years. Richard, how did the chairmanship of the Federal Reserve of Paul Volcker change things? Uh, in 1980 and 1981, uh, he raised interest rates extraordinarily uh, high to, to un unforeseen levels, levels that we haven't even gotten close to since then. And here that you are saying interest rate volatility is going to be high, it's going to be high. And there's sort of the staid financial industry saying, oh, no, look at the 60s and the 50s. It's been moderate. Here comes along Fed Chair uh, uh, Volcker, who you know doubles interest rates and doubles them again. What? Uh, how did that impact uh, the financial futures market? And then did you sort of create futures for shorter duration uh, notes, given that you know most of when he's changing the funds rate, he's changing the uh, overnight rate, uh, the federal funds rate. Um, and yeah, just tell us about that because I mean that must have been a fascinating period, and it's it's a period that a lot of folks now are thinking of because inflation is so high. Well, it it, it really the pre the inflation preceded the Fed action, right? So it wasn't like Volcker all of a sudden woke up and decided he would raise interest rates. <laughs> it was a response by an intelligent central banker to a problem which I think and history would suggest brings down civilizations, okay? Inflation is, we know from the Weimar Republic, we know from the ancient Holy Roman Empire, it's the killer beast, okay? And so Paul Volcker's response was appropriate and daring because to, you really had to, and this is a familiar setting, you really had to slam the brakes on to save the nation, you know? And you had to do it, it was very controversial. His predecessor, G. William Miller, did the opposite. He put the ease dramatically and brought on the Carter inflation. And he was replaced by Volcker. And Volcker recognized that you had to do that. So, you know, that brought about a lot of financial uh, innovation, the development of the interest rate swap, uh, treasury bill futures started, but they were dying out for a, a complex set of reasons. Uh, they were ultimately replaced by euro dollars, which was <clears throat> a great innovation. Sorry, Richard, tell us about euro dollars. There's a, a lot of focus on them. Uh, it can be very confusing. It's a term that originated before the currency, the euro, now euro dollar. Sometimes it can mean the the cross pair between how much dollars is worth how many euros. But it's offshore dollars, essentially, that flourished uh, in the wake of Bretton Woods. It's like starting in the early 1950s. But when people talk about the euro dollar contract, that is something extremely specific, which refers to the future rate of a three-month LIBOR, London interbank uh, offer grader. Uh, so yeah, how did the euro dollar market Tell us about that. 
Well, I, I think the most important thing to, to tell you is it's dead because it was manipulated. So I don't think there's much time that I can productively add. Uh, banks had manipulated it. Um, there were billions of dollars of fines and it wasn't based on real transactions. It was hypothetical. And ultimately, the Bank of England, the U.S. Fed, everybody said there had to be a replacement because it wasn't a real market. Eurodollar, it was the gold standard, uh, but LIBOR, everyone's moving away from LIBOR now because of the scandal. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and then there's sort of a race to replace LIBOR. And I know your company uh, has a product called Ameribor. But let's go, let's go back to the Eurodollar market. It's, did, would you say, Richard, it started out good and then it turned bad? Or would you say from its outset, it was, it was rotten? I, I think it started out because it filled a good need. And then the futures market and the volume, you had too little underlying transactions to support a $200 trillion hedging market. It, it, there were more people trading the derivatives than anything like the underlying market. And you couldn't take very few transactions and base a whole financial pyramid on it. It, it became evident to me in 2012, um, I, I, I took a look around and I said, this is not gonna work. Um, ultimately, the emperor has no clothes. We can't you know, have six transactions supporting $10 trillion. So it is obvious that, that it will be in, in the self-interest of certain people, not to intentionally misbehave, but, but the incentives were so great and the cash market was so small that it was inevitable, in my humble opinion. And, and again, like with treasury bonds and things like that, people said, no, nah, LIBOR is never going away. You go back to Chicago, you're wrong, you don't understand. LIBOR is the benchmark for the world. And again, I felt good about it because nobody seemed to believe it was going to happen. So as an inventor, you have to be a contrarian. And I said, it's phenomenal to me that and I got on a plane and I said, OK, let's develop an American interest rate. How much sense does it make for a, for a mortgage in Arkansas to be priced on a London rate between 30 banks? It, it yeah. Just doesn't. But price in dollars. Yeah. It, Richard, I'm so glad you brought this up. And, you, you know, you're, you're really hitting on, on a lot of points that sometimes frustrate me because there are there are folks who put a lot of attention uh, on the euro dollar market. And sometimes they say the euro dollar market is the truth. Oh, there's an inversion in the euro dollar curve. Richard, don't you understand? This means that a recession is imminent. Uh, so I, I'm glad that you're someone you do not worship at the altar of the euro dollars. I'm, not, that's, I'm really glad that you're here. Can you specify what you said when you said uh, there are way more derivatives than there are the actual cash market? Because some say actually it is perhaps generally accepted wisdom. Maybe it's uh, wrong. I want you to. I want your take. But that the euro dollar market is the deepest market. It's the most liquid market in the world. What do you say, Richard? Yeah, it's true for the futures. But it's not based on, on uh, 
an underlying viable cash market. It's a fiction, you know, and, yeah. and the, the fiction, because the need to hedge was so great, and the market grew at a time where there were significant underlying transactions and it just got out of hand. I mean, again, we're, we're all we're sitting here, Jack, talking about a funeral. So I, I, why are we talking about something that's dead, been discredited? Every central bank in the world thinks it's worthless. Why are we discussing this now? The amount of, of ink that is printed about somebody who's been dead and buried for the last decade and had been totally discredited, that your viewers should understand it is talking about something like the world without a car. Right. Well, it's it's sort of like, Richard, I, I guess an analogy would be, correct me if I'm wrong, in after the Roman em Empire, the civilizations that followed that uh, empire still use Roman coins, even though the Roman Empire was dead. So I, I want to make it clear: there are still you know, millions of transactions on the euro-dollar market, and uh, you know people still hedge. Uh, it is still very deep and and liquid on the futures. But you're saying the concept itself is dead. It's 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 archaic. Well, it is not only it's archaic you are legally not supposed to use it. So, you know, the very fact that, that you are, are fighting the will of the Fed and the Congress just doesn't make much sense. So I think what we've learned is, I don't know of anybody who is using uh, Euro dollars or, or LIBOR to originate any new loans or debt. The only thing that's left is the outstandings that were issued years ago and not any new issuance. So it's important for your listeners and viewers to understand that whatever is traded is a legacy, but there is no new use of LIBOR as a benchmark in the UK or in the US, and the only treatment is the legacy. And by June of 2023, even that will be migrated to another benchmark, right? So that's why I'm emphatic because you are 100% correct and right on the mark. They did trade, it's and trading LIBOR-based debt still exists, but, Everything will go away in June 23 by law based on the, the Reconciliation Act that the president signed in March. So everything legally will have to go away by June 23. So important for your listeners to understand, be cautious here. We've just decided that there's going to be euthanasia in June. <laughs> 2023, uh, the, the, the corpse will be officially cremated and that won't even exist anymore for outstanding debt. Yeah, there's a huge transition away from LIBOR. T tell me what are the uh, new uh, interest rate instruments that 
are in the running to replace LIBOR. There is your product, uh, Ameribor, which I want to hear all about. There's also there's Fed Fund Futures. Uh, there's something called SOFR, the Secured Overnight Financing Rate. How do you see this, this ecosystem evolve? Uh, perhaps, perhaps tell us about Ameribor first. And also, what specifically is it? You know, so so Eurodollar is three month dollar LIBOR. What is is Ameribor? Is it the overnight rate? Yeah, tell us. It's got an overnight rate, which is simply the banks it, and it's targeted to regional, mid sized community and minority uh, depository institutions, and it is an overnight rate among that class of players. So everybody but systemically important financial institutions. So we are a credit sensitive interest rate that is created by real transactions overnight. We also have a term rate in which we use not only what is transacted on our platform, but other data for all banks uh, in the short-term market to generate a 30 and a 90-day rate. Our premise has been, Jack, um, that choice is critical, that, that, that for some people, borrowing and lending at a credit-sensitive rate reflects their cost of funds, for example, for big banks. So SOFR may be appropriate. For us, for people who are borrowing and, and have credit sensitivity, not risk-free, Ameribor is, is, is appropriate. And our hypothesis is that choice is what's critical in the use of an interest rate benchmark, the same way that some people may index to the S&P, some people to NASDAQ, some people to the Dow Jones, that there is and should be a choice of benchmarks to reflect the nature of the institution. And in the same way that you have three kinds of wheat, you have a hard red, a soft red, and a spring, you have different benchmarks. And we think that um, people may and will likely choose a combination depending on their own risk profile. So the only thing we advocate is choice. Mm. That economists don't know anything <laughs> about markets. There's only one thing they all agree on, and that is diversification is good. Yes, Richard, I'm fascinated by the fact that it is credit sensitive. I want to hear more about that because let's say a Fed funds future, a future on what the federal funds rate is going to be, if there is a crisis and uh, there's a recession, a lot of interbank credit stress, likely the Federal Reserve will cut like they did drastically during March of 2020. So if you own federal funds futures or you own calls, you're long, uh, that can be actually a great hedge. But be that's because they're not credit sensitive. So for example, what does Ameribor do when there's payment stress? Does Ameribor, do, do rates rise or do they fall uh, like they do for Fed funds or, or your dollars? Well, they, they would, Jack, there, there was something years ago called the TED spread, which was the relationship between treasury bills and euro dollars. 
And it reflected that during times of stress, credit sensitive interest rates, that is where the counterparty could default, will go up more than risk-free interest rates. And so during a time of, of recession, the same way for your listeners that look at junk bonds versus government, so or 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 A versus governments or triple B versus governments, the fixed income markets have credit spreads built in, depending if it's risk-free. It's high-grade corporate, it's low-grade corporate. So there are a whole family of rates depending on the credit sensitivity of the borrower, to put it in, in your uh, terms. Uh, so you, Jack, might be a very highly qualified borrower, and you would get a better rate than me, who may not be as qualified, and, and banks will discriminate on interest rates based on their perception of the borrower's ability to repay. And clearly a regional bank or a small bank, a community bank, will find it harder to borrow when times are tough. And therefore they will also to their customers charge a higher rate because of a recession, thinking there's a higher probability of default. So it is a misnomer, but it's a convenient misnomer to talk about an interest rate. Okay, there is no interest rate per se, just like you might have a different multiple for Apple than you would for General Motors. And because they're both stocks, <laughs> it would be not the wise way to look at it to assume that they will behave the same in a recession because they're both stocks. I, I totally agree, Richard. There's so many interesting points. So I, I just looked up Ameribor. So it the rate did collapse from February to mid-March, uh, like many other interest rates, Eurodollar, LIBOR, SOFR, federal funds rate. And I wonder to what degree is that just because the Federal Reserve issued so much liquidity that the bank's ability to secure financing was, in effect, infinite. In other words, in a, quote, Wild West, quote, private markets, banks, perhaps their their funding costs would surge because no one wanted to lend to banks. But we live in a world of the Federal Reserve. Uh, what are, you, are you nodding your head? You disagree? Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you totally. When interest rates are zero and you add five trillion in liquidity to the system, if the risk-free rate is ten and the credit-sensitive rate is eleven, it doesn't mean anything because they're all so close to zero. But if if that same so if, if it's 10 basis points for the risk-free rate and 12 basis points for the risk rate, it, it's an imperceptible difference. It is 20%. So if interest rates are 5%, the same 20% spread would say that the, the credit-sensitive rate is 6%, 20% to 5%, right? So as a percentage... 
It, it is the same, but the actual basis point spreads are much larger. So in a world where you have zero interest rates and a belief that the Fed will bail out a, uh, everything that walks or talks, there is no difference, you know, uh, because it's not a normal environment. I, in my career, have lived through um, everything that was a one in a hundred year event, except it occurs every 10 years. So the one in a hundred year event was COVID-19. And then the other one before that was 2007 and eight. That was a one in a hundred year event. Then 9-11 was a one in a hundred year event. Then the tech stock drop was one in a hundred years and Volcker was one in a hundred years. The 87 crash was. So every decade or seven to 10 years, we experience a one in a thousand year event. So I don't believe any of them are one in a thousand years anymore. <laughs> so we could go back down to zero tomorrow or you could go be back to you know, five, six percent uh, tomorrow. I, I think it's very hard to, to judge and to put parameters on a forecast. All the more reason to have a hedging mechanism. Yeah. Uh, so, Richard, the current we're recording on August 25th. The current federal funds target range is between 225 basis points and 250 basis points. I look now and I see Ameribor, which is an unsecured rate, is at 245 basis points, so the top end of the range. But then, so far, the secured overnight rate is actually below the range of, I think, 218 basis points. So uh, to what degree can you explain that differential? And then do you typically imagine that Ameribor will sort of hover at the top end of the federal funds rate? And then perhaps we can talk about why the federal funds rate is no longer the biggest, most important rate. And that's you know, much more volumes in terms of dollars actually goes to the reverse repo rate, which is actually a pretty new thing. But yeah, so why is the Ameribor rate at sort of 245 versus the, the federal funds rate and SOFR, which is lower? So the... SOFR rate is risk-free. So you would expect that if it, that a private rate, which reflects the cost of, of, of borrowing to be higher than a risk-free rate. So it's actually what we expect. More than that, the credit sensitivity or the risk uh, for a very large bank, like a money center bank versus a small bank in Arkansas, you'd expect to be very, very different. And so it is behaving as one would expect. And, and so the, 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 uh, the smaller banks, the regionals and whatnot will have a, a higher rate and we typically trade in the top quartile or the top 1% of Fed funds because I think we reflect the real marginal cost of borrowing for, for a regulated depository institution. But you would expect that that firm that needs liquidity is going to be very different than J.P. Morgan's cost of funds. Right? That so. 
the smaller banks will have to borrow at a higher rate than the Fed funds average. That's expected, and the Fed funds average is going to be higher than the risk-free rate, and that also makes sense. Interest rates are so interesting, but but Richard, you're also a pioneer in carbon futures and climate futures. When did you start getting involved in this? It was extremely early, I know. And then, can you you tell us about? Uh, yeah, just 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 tell us why did you get involved in in carbon futures? So let, let me kind of set the stage for you, and I'm happy to talk about it at another time, or if you find that people are interested. We can do another show, Jack. Um, <laughs> I'd like that very much. Um, I got involved in 1990, about 33 years ago. Um, and for the same reason with financial futures, I looked at, I spoke to some scientists. I got approached by some folks in the lime industry, um, and they were going to interested in because acid rain was a big problem. And they said, you commoditize interest rates, could you commoditize air? And I said, sure, it's the same issue. Um, and they said, what? And I said, yeah, the trading is a good idea. My mentor and friend, uh, Ronald Coase foresaw that. And Yes, and so I worked on the development of the Clean Air Act of 1990. In 1991, the United Nations got a hold of me and said, we're holding a conference in 92, and, and would you prepare a paper to see, uh, to discuss the feasibility of a carbon futures market? I spoke to scientists. Did that um, and said, this is inevitable to me as interest rate volatility. The, that this, if you look at carbon concentration, it was going up and up and up. Pay attention to the scientists. This is going to become a existential problem for humanity and go and develop it. So we securitized the Costa Rican rainforest. Went to uh, with, to a panel with the vice president and went to Kyoto and pushed on that. Joined a few, um, a Swiss mutual fund board, helped to develop the first sustainable stock index. We sold it to Dow Jones. It's now called the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Formed an exchange, sold it, etc. So... The hypothesis is that air and water are finite and that ultimately they had to be rationed the same way money had to be rationed. And if it was good enough to support food, then it could be extended to air and now it can and should be extended to water. Right. Uh, Richard, would you say that I, I can imagine a situation in which you and the folks who work with you developing a climate product to trade, let's say you do the job perfectly, A+, but the technology and the structure is one thing, but the implementation requires government participation. So would you say it's fair to say that even the best possible futures, uh, uh, climate futures, greenhouse gases, emissions credits, and so on, is only as good as the government's implementing them? No, um, okay. I wouldn't, and I'm on the wrong side of, of uh, and and the very concept that we had with the Chicago Climate Exchange, 
I heard the same argument. Without the U.S. government, you'll never get this off the ground. We ultimately got 108 companies, uh, Ford Motor Company, Intel, IBM, uh, American Electric Power, uh, a huge a concentration of emitters with no government, totally voluntary. We had states like New Mexico join. We had cities like Chicago join. We had every single sector with the exception of some of them. So. I think voluntary can work without the government. Over the long term, you do need government, but government doesn't necessarily mean the federal government. The open interest, that is a measure of the breadth of markets, is for environmental commodities bigger than gold or approximately the size. So we now have a uh, regional markets in the Northeast and California, renewable energy, all of which are almost the size of the gold market and no federal government involvement. You've been, a, your questions have been fantastic. You are informed and do your homework and, and it's a pleasure uh, to, to talk to you about this subject and thank you for having me and, and good luck. I'm a teacher and anything I can do to help you as, as kind of in, in the same way, except you were doing it through podcasts. So I'm glad to support any effort and please feel free to um, contact me. And if our schedules permit, we'll look forward to seeing you again. Yes, Richard, thank you so much. Anytime I can have uh, someone on my podcast who invented the word derivative as applied to finance, I'm happy to do so. Thank you, Richard, so much. Um, yeah, we, next time we could talk interest rates, but as well more about climate and blockchain, which I, I know you've done a lot of thinking about as well. Dr. Richard Sandor, founder of the First Interest Rate Contract. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jack. Have a good day. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.